Good morning. Welcome, congregation and visitors, to to worship this morning. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 89, verses 1 through 4. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we'll be reading the chapter in its entirety. Hear the word of our Lord. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, and whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, Join and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing, it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath day, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands have nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. If you remember from our our 
past few months of going through uh, the book of Colossians. You remember that, of course, Paul is the one writing the letter to the Colossians. And he's writing it while he is imprisoned in Rome. Paul has never been to Colossae. He's heard about what's going on by Epaphras. Epaphras is uh, from Colossae, and he actually brought the gospel there after hearing Paul. And now Epaphras has come to Paul in Rome, reporting to him all that is going on. The Colossians, the Colossian Christians, are made up of mostly Gentile believers. And Epaphras comes to Paul and he tells them about the challenges that these new Christians are facing in in their faith. And most of these challenges come from false teachers. False teachers that are teaching that the work of Christ is not sufficient for salvation. They're telling them other things are needed other than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We get some hints in the book of Colossians as to to what these things are. They're emphasizing these false teachers, the the observance of certain feasts and festivals, of needing to lead an aesthetic life, of worshiping angels of abstaining from certain foods and drinks and of being circumcised. Paul hears this and his response to hearing this is writing the book of Colossians. And as we've looked through this book, we've seen so far how Paul has pointed all of them to the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ for their salvation. He's shown them how Christ is supreme over all things, over creation, providence, and redemption. And that it is only through Him, it is only through His power that they can be saved, that they can be reconciled with God. We've heard how Paul has urged them not to be taken captive by philosophy and vain deceit, but to follow Christ by faith, laying aside the former things, laying aside works righteousness and old traditions and embracing the new covenant. For the time of the new covenant has come, the promised new covenant has finally come. The long-awaited promise of a Messiah has been fulfilled. Jesus Christ has come into the world. And this has dramatically changed things. God has not changed, nor has His foundational message of repentance and faith in the Messiah changed. But things have changed. God's revelation of Himself has now dramatically increased. He has revealed Himself in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The details of the gospel message have significantly expanded. And of course, Jesus Christ has worked and accomplished the work of salvation for His people. The promise has been fulfilled. What has been longed for, what was known only through signs and figures, has now become sight. So as Jews and Gentiles become Christians, they had to contend with change and how it related to to what came before. Some held on to traditions that came before and were unwilling to let them go. They continued to say and urge people to adhere to these regulations. But the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of ceremony, the fulfillment of regulation by Christ now made it useless to continue these things. For these were no longer the ordinances commanded by God to perform. 
And in our passage this morning, Paul specifically addresses the right of circumcision. And he shows the Colossians that it must no longer be performed as a religious rite. For according to Paul, in Christ, Christians now receive a spiritual circumcision. A circumcision that accomplishes that which Old Testament circumcision could not. And Paul goes on in our verses too to highlight, and this is the title of our sermon uh, this morning, the salvific blessings of the new covenant. Paul specifically focuses in on the mortification of our sin, our union with Christ, the regeneration of our heart, the forgiveness of our sin, and our victory over evil. Now, as we look at these verses, we must keep in mind that how these are laid out, the order that these are laid out in in these verses, Paul isn't giving us an order of salvation here. He isn't telling us this is the order that the Holy Spirit works. These just happen to be in these in this order. This is how they came to came to Paul's mind as he was writing this letter. But the first blessing of the new covenant in these verses that that Paul presents to us is the mortification of sin. Now he does not use these words mortification of sin. He says this: putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision. Of Christ. What Paul is speaking about here, he's speaking about the eradication of sin in the life of a believer. When we are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, it leads, it must lead to the conquering of sin, to the ending of sin in the Christian's life. Being close to Christ, being spiritually circumcised with His circumcision can only lead to holiness, can only lead to godliness and perfection. Being close to the Lord Jesus Christ should only lead to the death of sin in us. As Christians, you ought to be Near to Christ, and in being, being near to Christ, you ought to be putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. This is what naturally happens to Christians. Your sins are being mortified, your old man is being put to death. And here in these verses, Paul is relating circumcision to the purifying of a Christian from sin, of being cleansed from sin. And this, after all, was what circumcision symbolized. It was a cleansing ritual, a sign and seal of the covenant in which the people of God were were set aside to be clean. The removal of the foreskin of an Israelite boy symbolized the cutting away of sin in his life. But now these Colossians, they're being pressured by false teachers who are claiming that circumcision is necessary for salvation. But Paul makes it very clear here That this is not the case. And what Paul does here is something that he does often in this epistle. And something I really love about the book of Colossians. Paul makes it eminently clear that Jesus Christ alone is the way of salvation. Contrary to what these Colossians are being told by others, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. For they have already received the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells them in verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. 
In Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells. Therefore, you find all you need in him. He's saying to the Colossians, you have been filled with him. And in him, you have obtained a better circumcision than an Old Testament ritual. You have been spiritually circumcised. Your salvation is completely accomplished because you are circumcised in Christ Jesus. And the circumcision that's referred to here, the salvation that is referred to here is is a complete salvation. The end result of the work of salvation Though we struggle now to put off the body of sin, and this will be a struggle for all of our life, yet in Christ it is already done. And the end of our life will see it complete. Matthew 1 speaks about Jesus and what he would be called, and they said. Uh, It says that Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. And this isn't something that is completely fulfilled until we die and enter glory. However, Christ coming into the world, his completion of his work here guarantees this complete salvation in each Christian's life. We are now going through the mortification of sin. But yet it is already complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though work remains to be done, though the difficult work of sanctification is being done in our lives, and much still needs to be undertaken, yet in Christ it is already done. And we have put off our body of sin. In the Old Testament, the covenant people of God went under the knife. They were circumcised with a knife symbolizing their separation from the world, symbolizing the the cutting away of sin. But now in Christ there is no knife. The circumcision that Christ performs is is not symbolic. It's, It's a real separation from the world. Actual Separation and godliness are a result of a spiritual circumcision. And this circumcision is a circumcision that doesn't change the exterior, but it changes the Christian's heart. It isn't done with a knife, but it's performed by the Holy Spirit. But the Lord in His goodness and His willingness to, to reveal Himself to us still does give us a sign of His covenant faithfulness. He still does give us a sign of His graciousness. In the new covenant, He gives us baptism as a sign and seal of His covenant faithfulness. I love how Paul creates a a connection here in verses 11 and 12 between circumcision and baptism. In verse 11 he says, we are now circumcised in Christ. There's no longer a need for physical circumcision. But then in verse 12, which we're going to look at closely in in a minute, he, he shows that we are united with Christ in baptism. He shows the importance of baptism. He shows there's now... A new sign and seal of his covenant faithfulness. The one circumcision is, it is complete in Christ. And now there's a new sign and seal. But there's more to this next verse, to verse 12, than just telling us that baptism is a sign and seal, that baptism is a necessary sign of the covenant. This verse also reveals much about the work of of Jesus Christ. We often compare the work of of Christ for his people to to being an agreement, to to being a contract. He legally took our place. 
He lived a perfect life for us. He suffered for us. He died on the cross for us. He rose again and ascended into heaven for us. And this is amazing. But this verse brings us even to something deeper. There's there's more to it than just this. There is a unity between Christ and the believer. A unity so strong that the Christian and his Savior are inseparably connected. Let's read this verse again. We as Christians, those are my words, are buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. As Christ suffered and died, as the Lord Jesus Christ descended into the grave, as he rose again from the dead, there was this inseparable connection, this union between him and believers. You see the difference there just than between a contract of him legally taking someone's place? There's more than a contract happening here. There's There's a unity between Christ and the believer. A unity between him and his children. He did these things almost as it were united with his people. Another thing that's really interesting in this verse is if if you do a quick read of it, especially verse 12, you do a, a quick read of verse 12... It would almost seem to indicate to you that the sacrament of baptism is the instrument of salvation in in the Christian's life. But if you take a closer look at this verse, you'll see this is not at all what Paul is saying. He's showing, and going back to these two verses, he's showing that physical circumcision is no longer needed. For we have been spiritually circumcised in Christ. He's showing us that baptism is now the sign and seal of the covenant. That it is essential that his people are brought under this sign and seal. Baptism is important. It's a means of grace. That it is a sacrament that is necessary for the believer. But yet look at what he's saying here where he says, Wherein also ye are risen with him... Through the faith of the operation of God. He's very plainly making it clear in these verses that neither physical circumcision nor baptism saves, but that we are only saved through faith in Him. Circumcision was necessary, and baptism is now necessary for us. Baptism is a sign and seal of our inseparable union with Christ. It is a sign and seal of the washing away of our sins, for we are buried with him in baptism. But Paul is very clear here. We can only be saved by believing through faith in him alone for our salvation. Again, Paul is doing here what he has been doing throughout the book of Colossians, emphasizing the exclusivity of Christ. That salvation is only found in his person and work and our access to the fount of his grace is only found through the vehicle of faith. It is by faith, according to this verse, that we are risen with him. Here again, we see the intimate unity between Christ and the Christian. As Christ was raised from death to life, so we are risen to new life. Christ went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, when he died on the cross, he did so with our old nature united to him. And when he rose from the dead, as he gained new life, so we are born again in him. When he arose, 
because of what he has done, because of what he had accomplished. He left our old nature in the grave. As he died, so our old nature was being put to death. And if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, and this is true for you, as sure as Christ died, so sure has your old man been put to death. As sure as Christ arose from the dead, so sure is it that you have a new nature, a new nature that delights in the Lord. A new nature that cannot live without Him. A new nature that desires to serve and obey Him. Now we do still see the remnants of the old man. Every believer lives the reality of Romans 7. The old man despite having a death sentence, despite being in the grave, still seems to hang on. He still seems to have so much influence in our lives. But it's from a grave that he still struggles. He is still engaged in his final death spasms, striving to come back to life. And we see this effect in our lives, our remaining love for sin, our remaining selfishness, pride, desire to serve ourselves rather than perfectly serving our Lord and displaying the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But be assured, dear Christian, though we must still fight to overcome sin, And struggle with the Holy Spirit's help to win each battle. Yet we can be confident knowing that our sinful nature has been condemned to death. It has been buried with Christ. And it will never rise to life again. And this fact that we are united with Christ in His death... We're united with him in his resurrection. Doesn't only reveal the, the truth of God's salvific work in our lives. But the realization of this truth should have an effect on our lives as well. It should manifest fruit in our lives. As Christ died, as he suffered, so we are called to suffer as well. We're called to die to sin and to share in his suffering and death. As Christ suffered, so we are called to suffer for his sake and to be conformed to his image by the putting off of sin. As Christ rose to life, so we are called to rise to a new life. A life separate from the world. A life free from sin and worldly influences. But this new life, this new life, Paul speaks about it in the next verse. This is this new life. We do not earn or, or accomplish this new life. The same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the one who gives us new life. Paul makes this clear when he says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. Paul plainly tells these Colossians who they are by nature. He plainly tells them where they come from and what their natural state towards God was. The first thing he says, they were dead in their sins. There was no life in them. Their actions, their words, their thoughts, their sins testified to their deadness. There was no life present in their beings. They did not know the Lord. These Colossians, they were heathens. They served false gods. Had not the Lord intervened in their city and in their hearts, they would have deliberately remained spiritually dead, enslaved to their sin, enslaved to 
to wickedness. And second, Paul shows these Colossians what I'm going to call, he shows them their status. He tells them that they are dead in the uncircumcision of their flesh. The Colossians were heathens. They were Gentiles. They were not the people of God. They were not circumcised and set aside as covenant children of God. They were not allied outwardly with God, but chose for themselves the citizenship of the world. Their status was such that they were enemies of God, enemies of God's people. But now we see the heart of our Lord. Because it's the heart of our Lord that shines forth here. Our Lord comes and he calls these doubly guilty, these double enemies, enemies who have actively opposed him through their sin, enemies who have opposed them through their allegiance and through their status. And the Lord comes to these Colossians. He calls them. He comes and he quickens enemies such as these to be his people. He comes and he makes these people alive. He regenerates these people to salvation. What a beautiful and awesome display of our Lord's character. Of his heart towards sinners. He awakens enemies. He opens their eyes so that they can see the truth of who they are. So that they can see their sin. They can see the misery that they have placed themselves in. He opens their eyes to see their enmity against God. How they are enslaved to their godless desires. He shows them their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he opens their hearts so that his spirit can dwell therein. We serve this God. He is be, being proclaimed to you this morning. This God that calls double enemies to repentance and willingly makes them alive. This same God comes this morning and calls each of us to look to Him. He calls us to be in wonder of who He is. And dear Christian, it's this same God who has regenerated you. It is this same God who has given you life in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He took you, an enemy, and made you alive. He called you and worked repentance and faith in you so that you could be alive to Christ and live your life for His glory. Our God willingly gives new hearts to double enemies. He called these Colossians worldly, wicked sinners, heathens and Gentiles. He called them to repentance. He stooped down to their level and caused the gospel to be spread among them, urging them to repent and believe in Him. How can we not follow this good God? Unlike the Colossians, We are already the people of God. He has already claimed us, each of us here, as, as His. He baptized us to be His. He put His name on each of us. How can we not follow this God? How can we not believe the gospel? We hear His earnest and sincere call to us daily. His call to repentance. His call to faith. His call to live our lives for His glory. How can we hear such a great gospel and yet neglect so great a salvation? So turn, O oh sinner. Confess your sin. Bring, bring nothing to Him. Do not bring your efforts. Do not bring your best works. For they are but filthy rags. Simply cling to Christ and His cross. 
He's all you need for now and for eternity. You who are dead, come alive. Come to Christ and live. Live forever. He will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. He will open your eyes to your condition. And He will make you whole. But Christ does not only make us alive. He does not only give us spiritual life, but He forgives our sins. As Paul says, He forgives us all our trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us. What is this handwriting of ordinances? Well, it's the law of God. When God gave Moses the Decalogue or the, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, he wrote them down on stone tablets. The Lord communicated his law to us and it was written down for us. God's law was written down in the Old Testament and we have it today. We read the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, at the beginning of this service. We know what God requires of us. He requires us to be perfectly holy, to perfectly honor Him, and to perfectly love our neighbor. There is no other way for us to please Him. There is no other way for us to gain God's favor other than perfectly keeping his handwritten ordinances. And many of us have tried. Many of us have tried to do this. And all but one have failed. I remember as a child waking up and thinking, from now on I'm, I'm not going to sin anymore. Maybe you've tried to do the same thing, children. Children. How long do you think I lasted? One day? One hour? One minute? One second? Well, when the Lord begins to work in someone's heart, when we're awakened by the Holy Spirit to see our sin, we begin to see the extent of our sin in our lives. In the light of God's law, we begin to realize the extent of our sinful condition. In the light of God's good law, we see that we we rightly stand condemned before Him. Our best intentions, our best efforts, our best sacrifices do not erase any of God's handwriting against us. In fact, your good intentions, your best efforts, your church attendance, your doing what is right, your moral uprightness, if done without faith, they only contribute to your damnation. For if we examine ourselves according to God's law, we see that we continually break each commandment, We are idolaters, lawbreakers, murderers, thieves, adulterers, liars, people who are jealous and covetous. Our whole being is corrupted with sin, and we only sin continually. So how long do you think I lasted as a child? When I made the determination not to sin, I didn't last even a second. I never stopped sinning. The handwriting of God's ordinances condemns each one of us here. We can try, and and some of you will try to earn God's favor, and are trying to earn God's favor and mercy by your vain attempts to keep God's good and right law. 
Like the false teachers in Colossae urging new Christians to practice certain traditions and, and superstitions. And some of you may be clinging to traditions, to superstitions, to other regulations for your salvation. But this will not help you when it comes to your eternal welfare. You will not succeed in pleasing God. And when you stand before His throne on Judgment Day, He will rightly and justly condemn you. But there is one, and only one person who has ever kept God's ordinances, who has ever kept, who has kept all the handwriting, every mark, every jot and tittle, and that is Jesus Christ. He too determined to never sin, and unlike us, he succeeded. He always has glorified God. He has always loved his neighbor and all that he did. He has never had a wrong thought or motivation. And he did this because it is who he is. He is righteous. He is holy. He is good. He did this because he loves his people. He did this for his people. He did this so that he would be a substitute for his people. He took their place. Their sins came upon him and his righteousness became theirs. And it is only because of Jesus Christ. It is only because of him, dear Christian, that you can stand before God robed in the innocence and righteousness of your Savior. And Jesus Christ did all of this. He suffered and died on the cross. He took upon Himself the punishment for sins so that your transgressions can be forgiven, so your debt of sin could be wiped out. We see here in this verse, Paul is speaking about sin being blotted out. And there's more to this than than just forgiveness. When someone sins against us and comes comes and asks us for our forgiveness, we, we excuse them. We excuse them for the wrong that they have done. We're saying everything's okay now. They no longer need to make amends. They no longer need to do anything to be restored into friendship with us. But in a sense, the sin is still out there. If our sin, if, we're, if we broke the law, we, we get a criminal record. And, and that record of our transgression is still there. But when Christ forgives our sins, He does so much more. When He forgives us, all of our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. They're nailed to the cross with Him. They were nailed there 2,000 years ago. They died In the grave with him. When Christ forgives our sins, he blots them out. This is the only way that this handwriting of the law that condemns us can be erased. The law no longer serves to condemn us, but we are now in Christ and his righteousness has been given to us. The law now declares that we are righteous and holy before God. Our record of sin is erased. It no longer exists. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the only way to please God. We must come to an end of ourselves, our own abilities, And find our only hope in Jesus Christ. For He is the only one. He is the only way. He is the only way that we can gain favor and salvation with the Lord and judge of the universe. But Christ has not only forgiven us our sins... 
But he also continues as our king. He continues as our warrior in defeating his and our enemies. Paul speaks of here of principalities and powers which are angelic beings. Now maybe Paul mentions these because the Colossians have been encouraged to worship them. If you see in verse 18 it says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels or spirits, intruding into those things which he hath not seen. They're being encouraged to worship angels. Now I know from my time in a country where spirits were worshipped that this type of religion is one of fear. The wrong kind of fear. People think that if they do not bring sacrifices, if they do not worship the spirits of the world or the spirits of their ancestors... That these vindictive spirits will punish them and bring horrible things, bring great harm into their lives. And perhaps that is what's being advocated here in Colossae. What Paul here in this verse tells them that they do not need to fear spiritual powers. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has shown these spirits. He has made a show of them openly, meaning he has publicly put them to shame by triumphing over them. Jesus Christ is ruler of all, Paul tells them. He rules over angels. He rules over Satan and his minions who are fallen angels. And not only is he sovereign over them, not only does he have complete control over them and all that they do, but he's put them to public shame. And he did this by defeating them through his redemptive work. Jesus Christ put Satan and his minions to shame by coming into the world. By suffering and dying and rising And ascending into heaven. Jesus has won the victory for his people. He has overcome Satan and sin for you as well, dear Christian. He has triumphed in the battle and he has won the victory for you. He has stripped these principalities and powers of all their power. And though we must fight them. We can know they cannot do anything against you that is contrary to your Lord's will. In conclusion, I want to just take a, a more broad look at what's happening here. In the perspective of us looking back on these saints so long ago. We can be tempted to think that the struggles of long ago, the temptations and trials of long ago Christians, the temptations of Christians from different cultures, that they're different from those that we face. But when we look closer, when we examine our our hearts, we find there isn't much that's different. There, in fact, is nothing new under the sun. The errors, the false teaching, the sinful uh, inclinations that the Colossians faced are the same ones we face today. They may be wearing different clothes, but underneath they are exactly the same. We are consistently reverting to self-justification through works righteousness And our warped understanding, we, just like the Colossians, are tempted to add our filthy rags to the perfect work of Christ. And so we must guard our hearts against this. We must daily look to Christ alone for our salvation. For it is only Him. It is only His work that earns the salvific, the salvation blessings of the covenant for us. It is only Him and His Spirit that sanctifies us 
and causes the mortification of our flesh. It is only He who earned for us the blessing of union with Him. It is only His Spirit that regenerates us and gives us life. It is only He who made it possible so that He could forgive us. And it is only He who gains the victory over Satan and sin for us. Amen. Our faithful and merciful Lord in heaven, we thank Thee so much for the simple gospel. But yet, Lord, we confess that we complicate it so much trying to add our own clauses, trying to add our, our own doings to it. Oh Lord, help us all to see Thee, to see Thee, dear Lord Jesus. Help us all to find our only hope in Thee, that Thou would be our salvation, that Thou would be our joy in life, our purpose in life. So, Lord, bless each of us this day. Let thy word powerfully work in this day. Tonight with Pastor Bile, Lord, help him and be with him as he brings thy word and that, that it would powerfully work in our hearts. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.